Okay, welcome back to Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI, 88.9 FM in Irvine, also on the web at KUCI.org. We were just uh, listening to uh, a CD there, uh, Yahe Pinta, Psychedelic Shaman Songs of Santiago Matumbahoy, and uh, that's a recording of an actual ayahuasca session. And uh, that's uh, appropriate for our show today because our guest, Daniel Pinchbeck, has uh, been involved in those and were actually uh, quite inspirational to uh, his first book, Breaking Open the Head, or his earlier book, and the one we're talking about today, 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl. Daniel, when was the uh, last time that you uh, did an ayahuasca session, if you don't mind saying? Yeah, I actually do kind of mind saying. Okay, <laughs> all right. <laughs> I, I understand why, uh, but that that's fine. And uh, it's uh, can you tell us how many sessions you have done? Uh, I haven't really kept count. I mean, uh, maybe 30, something like that. Do, do you uh, find that each session has a, a, kind of a different theme to it? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know... A different scene to it, and you know, I guess they're all different in, their, in, in in some respects. You know, there's definitely repeating themes. Also, you know, you never know what you're going to get, which is part of the the fun of, of these medicines. It, would you say uh, that was the biggest um, force in sort of altering your consciousness, or, or was it a you know combination? Was it the iboga, or was it uh, the DPT, or? I think it was a combination, you know, and I think I was very lucky to um, have some of these experiences uh, in their, you know, proper and original context, you know, even despite the difficulties, uh, whether it was the iboga or the, or the ayahuasca or the mushroom experience. Or then in the new book, I worked with the Santo Daime which, in Brazil, which is a religion that uses ayahuasca down there. So um, I think when you, when you do uh, uh, these medicines uh, or these teacher plants, uh, in their proper context, you kind of uh, create a kind of field of protection around yourself. You kind of uh, connect to a whole lineage of past practitioners who, who've worked with them properly. So, so uh, could you talk a little bit, though, about the DPT? Because I, I found that really fascinating, what, what happened to you in the aftermath of doing that. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, I had a kind of... Uh, occult experience of some kind of uh, entity from the psychic realm that, that definitely seemed to have a kind of Alistair Crowley-ish uh, edge to it, uh, kind of stayed with me for a while. And, and I had the experiences of poltergeist phenomena and um, kind of this thing like this being kind of haunting my dreams. I had all these dreams about him and kind of would go when I close my eyes and we go into visionary states and then I had to do some sort of rituals to kind of reintegrate that uh, energy that had been unleashed. So, yeah, that was uh, very transformative, and I've written about that in depth in, in both books, uh, because I, I didn't really believe in the occult. I, I, you know, I didn't take any of the stuff that seriously. And uh, it, it really was very sobering in a way that I saw that there were, you know, aspects of, of the psychedelic experience and, and the realms of the psyche that uh, really had to be approached with caution. Uh, it probably it probably really shifted me from just being like an advocate for psychedelic experience to really recognizing that there there's reasons to have uh, caution uh, about these experiences. And there are reasons that people should be properly prepared and, and work with uh, shamans and guides, uh, you know, if they want to really have these experiences. Yeah, whatever these entities are, uh, occultic or, or or 
alien or, or that, that seem to be made more available to us through the use of psychedelics, they, they are, uh, they, there is a certain danger in the sense that, that they, they can overwhelm you. Is that the proper way to say it? Yeah, I mean, definitely. And I've mean, definitely uh, encountered people who, you know, have not recovered from uh, experiences of the other worlds, you know. So, you know, and, and, and you know, and, and for me, that's like a huge uh, development that's happening, you know, from the 60s until today. I think in the 60s, you know, really, the, you know, we didn't have any other model than a consumer culture. And then Timothy Leary, you know, was just telling everyone to turn on and, and drop out. And so, you know, people would kind of blow their minds with these experiences, and they wouldn't be able to integrate them properly. You know, partially because we didn't have any shamans around or wisdom traditions or elders. Uh, you know, people were just kind of left to their own devices. You know, so even somebody like John Lennon said that he, like, destroyed his ego in LSD, and it took him years to pull it back together. You know, so, I mean, I, 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 in my books, I, I discussed the 60s as a kind of... Uh, first attempt at a, um, you know, mass cultural uh, voyage of shamanic initiation for, for the modern Western psyche. And I feel that right now we're, we're engaging on, on, that, on that second stage, which is a much deeper stage. And now in the intervening, like, 40 years, a lot of people have gone and, like, done their homework, you know, so people have made connections with shamanic lineages, they've, uh, you know, taken on meditation practices, there's been this really deep uh, integration of... Uh, Eastern metaphysics into into the Western consciousness, you know the Eastern non-duality perspective. So now we're much better prepared to, uh, to to sort of explore the shamanic realms. This is out the rabbit hole. KCI and Irvine Robert Larson. I'm talking uh, today with Daniel Pinchbeck. We're discussing his book 2012: The Return of Quetzalcoatl. Uh, yeah, Daniel, let's let's talk about you know the actual year 2012, and, and you know we're in. Uh, 2007 now it's five years away and and what it the next five years could, could you give us like a couple of scenarios I, I mean I know you're not saying you can predict the future or you're any kind of prophet or anything like that but um, w- you know like a kind of best case scenario of how we could evolve over these next five years and then maybe one that's not so great where there might be some kind of catastrophe but we'll pull ourselves out of it sure uh, I mean yeah, I mean, I definitely am a little bit leery of that. But, but I, first of all, I just wanted to, before I forget, I don't want to forget during this time with you, that um, I wanted to promote this web magazine I started called uh, Reality Sandwich, which is on the Internet at realitysandwich.com. And it's really a space for a much deeper discussion of a lot of these areas. And uh, we're getting amazing uh, essays and articles in uh, every day, and there's a whole community forming around it. So if people are interested in the subjects we're discussing, I really recommend that they check us out on uh, Reality Sandwich. Because uh, really, it's evolving every day right now. It's pretty exciting. Okay, realitysandwich.com, and we'll give that yeah, out again exactly, before the show's exactly. up, okay? Yeah. So now, in terms of your scenarios, um, I, I think that um, the best-case scenario at this point is, I mean, you know, there's a new book out, uh, I guess it's Naomi Wolf's book on the uh, end of America. Oh, yeah. yeah. seeing a lot of parallels between, you know, the U.S. government's uh, uh, kind of... Uh, evolution in the last few years and the evolution of fascist regimes uh, in previous uh, periods. And I think it's a very powerful uh, statement, that book. So, you know, we, you know we, it seems like you know, we're sitting on the basin of all of these uh, what physicists call strange attractors, and one of them would lead us into that fascism rabbit hole where as resources get tight and, you know, the financial system tanks and 
you know, the military thing keeps amping up, you know, we, we kind of capitulate and people start going into internment camps and dissidents disappear and we just go through that whole thing again. But we honestly don't have time for that because of the crisis of the biosphere. We really can't wait 10 years for some kind of like fascist monolith to, to assemble and then self-destruct as they always do. So I think a much better scenario would be something like the uh, Berlin Wall falling in 1989. And if we look at what happened with the Berlin Wall, uh, you know, nobody had predicted, that, that, as far as I know, that that was going to happen. I mean, all these highly paid political think tanks and analysts, and nobody said, you know, the Berlin Wall is just going to be taken down by people who are done with it, and, um, you know, there isn't going to be a big war or nuclear attack or, you know, bloodshed. So, you know, it happened because on a subliminal level, people just couldn't have that uh, wall anymore. You know, and, and I think, like, uh, if we look at what's happening with uh, our financial system in Wall Street right now, and that's another wall that needs to come down. I mean, if we think about, um, you know, the origin of Wall Street uh, is interesting and in that it was originally a wall that the Dutch put to keep out the Indians. You know, so it was an original division between the market economy of the European settlers and the gift economy of, of the indigenous people. Uh, that's, that's pretty extraordinary. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, so, and so, you know, now if you look at the subprime mortgage market crisis that's taking place right now, it's really uh, revealing the underpinnings of the system where it's really the system of uh, fictitious uh, capital that is this giant funnel that's moving uh, mountains of, of this fictitious capital from, you know, the, the masses, the multitudes of, of lower-income people to the oligarchies. And there's been this just tremendous uh, concentration of... Uh, wealth and power in, in the last decades to, the, to a really like inhuman extent. I mean, I mean, it's absurd at this point. I, I love so, the, you know, but there ahead. has to be, there has to be a general, um, you know, right realization that, uh, that's, that's all just been, you know, the system has been gamed to, to make this happen. And, you know, just the, the market, you know, the mortgage crisis is a case in point. I mean, we basically, you know, after 2001, they needed to, um, have a gimmick to keep the economy going. They, they sort of decided to, to work the housing market they started giving out, uh, you know, these, these mortgages to basically anybody who wanted them with no collateral down, uh, you know, so loans without collateral that had ballooning interest payments. You know, obviously people are going to start defaulting on them in mass, but none of the economists and, and financial analysts bothered to calculate that. So, you know, the, the millions and millions of people then have started to default on these things. And, um, you know, but meanwhile, these mortgages were bundled together into securities and kind of traded up the financial pyramid. So it now seems that about, like, uh, you know, half the money that's been on the market is kind of delusional, delusionary or fictive capital. And so what the Federal Reserve did in, in the last uh, months was basically start uh, just crediting uh, money to the banks and the hedge funds, just basically giving over to them tens of, of you know, millions, billions, I don't know, like just huge amounts of money, you know, not to the poor people on the ground who, who were caught in these predatory lending practices, but to these financial, in, uh, you know, institutions. You know, so you know, it's, pre it's pretty uh, bald-faced and, and, and pretty uh, outrageous. I mean, there's one of many outrageous acts that's been happening, you know. So um, at a certain point, when a system has, like, delinked from human values and, and human concerns to a certain level, I don't think it can continue. And, and we might have a kind of a Berlin Wall moment. Um, you know, in the best case scenario, nonviolent uh, supersession of this prevailing order, and then this realization that there's a transition to an order that's based on, you know, ecological values, you know, re really uh, creating a sustainable culture, and, you know, doing a lot more uh, sharing of resources. You know, I don't think we're going to see 
you know, in either case, we're not going to see, you know, one person, you know, in a car in a big iron machine trundling down the highway in mass like we do in L.A. today. That's not going to be happening even like five years from now. So either that can be like, you know, a disaster or it could be like the best thing ever because we're actually in a kind of community paradigm where people are pulling for each other. You know, so, so, so yeah, so, I mean, I think um, then the other aspect for me is, is this element of psychic evolution I was talking about later. And I think that, you know, if we were to realize that there were these latent powers in the human psyche, uh, that, that is going to become a major uh, area of, of development. And we might be doing <laughs> collective uh, planetary workings to, uh, you know, change the climate system, reverse some of the damage that's been done, been done even, even address like the polar shift potential. Uh, and, and we might find that um, collective psychic working, you know, when we were in the right frame of consciousness, could have tremendous potential. And not necessarily so much like a mass movement, but just groups of people uh, such as yourself and others who, who know about these things getting together and do, doing shamanic practices and developing their their uh, psychic life and, and uh, working occult uh, practices in a positive way to bring about these changes. And, it, and it's sort of weird. Yeah, well, I, think, I think we'll need some kind of mass movements also. I mean, for instance, you know, we have to think about, like, China and India. Now, we've programmed them over the last 50 years with the American dream of, you know, materialism. So, you know, we've bombarded them with our cultural propaganda. So now they're, they're imitating that model completely. <laughs> and we're learning that the planet ecologically really can't support, you know, these masses of populations moving into that resource-intensive consumption lifestyle. So, you know, as the engine of this uh, kind of uh, situation, you know, our media has a huge power. And even, even though America has forfeited a lot of its global prestige through uh, its recent actions, we still somehow operate the collective dream machinery for planet Earth through our media and culture industries. So I would think that what we really need is a, is a, is a really uh, intense... Uh, you know, transformation of media paradigm. We're, we're really utilizing our, our media power as a uh, agent of, uh, you know, sort of creating a new value structure and, and, and shifting the whole uh, dynamic on the planet. And that's probably going to happen, you know, really in the, in the next few years if it's, if it's going to be uh, in time to be effective. Do, do you feel like the Internet and people blogging and these kinds of things is a step in the right direction? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh Obviously, what's happening on the internet is, is super uh, extraordinary, and uh, you know I think like you know could point towards like a next level form of uh, you know global direct democracy or global social organization. I'm really interested in this book called Multitude by uh, Antonio Negri and Michael Hart, which really looks at how um, there's this kind of uh, yeah new 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 evolutionary and transformational potentials in the communications technology that we've developed. And, you know, if you think about the history, like whenever there's a new, like a profound new transformative media technology, it really uh, changes things. You know, so we would never have had mass democracy before we'd had the Gregorian printing press. And, uh, you know, it may be that the uh, Internet and social networks point toward a, a future social organizing paradigm that could actually be, you know, super efficient and, and, and careful. And, I mean, I really hope that we'll be using you know, our, our technological capabilities and our technical mindset to, you know, think about, you know, species extinction, you know, put back together like wilderness corridors that allows different species to thrive, put ecosystems back together, you know, the, the sort of uh, intelligence which has gone into a lot of our distracting 
kind of implements could go into, you know, really, really uh, tools and techniques for uh, really, really helping the situation. Yeah, I want to ask you one last thing. The uh, You're talking about over the next five years, we're going to notice this rapid change. And the although not necessarily one major event, but just a lot of things happening very quickly. Now, if somebody went to sleep right now, was in, say, a coma, and, and then woke up in January 2013, would would they just be almost, like, in shock at how different the world would look? Is that what you sort of see happening? I, I you know, I, I don't have any, I don't know, you know? I mean, I, I admit, in that sense, 2012 was a little bit false advertising. You know, I, what I really think is that right now we have a, uh, you know, a, you know if you actually, if you look at contemporary physics, you know, they really talk about parallel universes and, and multiverses, and, and it's like right now, you know, if, if human consciousness awakens, you know, we, we can choose our, our, our parallel universe or our multiverse that we, that we move into, and if we don't awaken, I don't think we're going to make it as a species. You know, I mean, I will maybe make it to 2013, but by 2050, we're going we're gonna to be pretty much uh, toast. <laughs> okay, so we better get to work on that, developing our our ethics and our psychic uh, functioning, and uh, yeah, just... and, and actual visceral infrastructure. I mean, I think community organizing, community activism, you know, whatever people can do on on a local level, and, and even on, and then also on a global level, you know, through media and the internet, to uh, you know, shift consciousness and, and and actually create new sort of techniques for organizing. Uh, it's, it's really critical right now. Okay, and they can discuss all of that, find out more about your thoughts on it by going to uh, realitysandwich.com? That's, that's the idea. Okay, great. Uh, and there, seriously, uh, we didn't even touch on me, a quarter of all of the ideas that are in the book 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl. So I urge all of you to uh, take a look at that book. It, it's uh, really provocative and uh, gets you thinking in all kinds of new ways. And uh, so thanks so much for writing the book, Daniel, and for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Okay. Talk to you again sometime. Great. Bye. Bye. All right, yeah, Daniel Pinchbeck, his book, 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl, and yeah, realitysandwich.com. Go there and just find people talking about all kinds of bizarre and interesting notions about our potential as humans and what we can do to um, salvage the situation we're in.